Good morning, Stuart, and good morning, listeners across the globe. I, I wish across the globe, but, but perhaps one day <laughs> we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there. This is not actually a morning show, although I said good morning. We're actually recording this a couple days earlier, so you will not be able to call into the show to talk with our very, very special guest, Dr. Heather Yekis roden hematologist-oncologist with Hematology Oncology of the Treasure Coast. Good morning, Heather. Good morning, Ira. And good morning, Leanne. Good morning. And good morning, Frank. Yes, good morning. Frank and all. Yes, Frank's our chief engineer. For those of you that don't remember, Frank's the guy that makes us sound better than we actually are. I've always said, though, you have the perfect face and voice for radio. I, and I have the perfect face for radio. <laughs> I, I don't know if I have the perfect voice for anything. It's certainly not for singing. So this morning, we want to talk to Dr. Heather Yekis Roden, hematologist-oncologist. And we wanted to talk about cancer care. The name of the show, it thrills me to the marrow. We're going to talk about cancer care. But first, we'd like to get to know Dr. Yeki's Roden a little bit better. So don't be confused. There's another Dr. Roden in town. Is that right? That is right. You are married to? Dave Roden, who's a urologist. A very well-known and loved. I, I can't, No, nobody doesn't love Dr. Heather and Dr. Dave. Yes, they all love my husband. <laughs> it, it is great. So our last guest was Dr. Jean Vickers. She's a nephrologist here in town, and she's married to Rob Vickers, who's an oculoplastic surgeon here in town. And when they were dating, or actually when they got married, someone asked her, what's it like to be married to a doctor? And she said to him, you'll have to ask my husband. So do you feel that way? <laughs> I think our both of our lives are so crazy and hectic that um, we're both doctors with very busy schedules and we met in a hospital when we were interns and we've just always lived to breathe being doctors, being married to doctors, that we wouldn't even know anything different. Wow. So does life ever calm down at the Yekis Roden household? It does not. And we have two little kids who keep us very busy as well as a dog. So we're constantly on the go. What's dinner conversation like? Is it all medicine or is it normal stuff? Do you like talk about Netflix or is it all like, what did you see today? It depends who's sitting at the table. Mm. It's depend because we eat it a lot in several meals at night because we eat in stages. Yeah, yeah. Shifts in my house. <laughs> so, so are you typically home after him? Or I'm before? home before him. Okay. And so you take the first shift. So I start my day at around 5.30 in the morning and I round first by 6 a.m. And then I go see patients in the office and I leave early and my husband Wait starts, a minute. What's early? Let's define well, early. Possibly 3.34. Okay. 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 Good. And then except for a couple, except for Thursdays is my late day. But my husband starts later because he's involved with getting the kids up and going to school, and then he comes home later in the day. Mm -hmm. And he oftentimes has add-on surgeries in the afternoon. 
So I'm usually home for the kids in the afternoon, but he's more about with the kids in the morning. So it's kind of seems like two ships passing in the night. <laughs> it is sometimes. Ira. It is. So that's why your weekends are very important to you. Correct. Now, you cover every hospital on the Treasure Coast. We do. How yeah. do you do that? So there are five doctors in my group. Um, we're all equal partners, and we all take call one out of five weekends. So it's only one weekend out of the five that I'm actually on call. But when I'm on call, I'm responsible for all five hospitals, which is quite crazy. That's a lot of people. A lot of patients, a lot of consoles. And sick patients, too. Like, let's let's make sure the audience fully understands that you have the sickest of the sick. You are taking yes, care of. Yes, that is correct. Typically cancer patients, um, acute anemia. Things. I make a big loop around the Treasure Coast, go up US-1 and back down I-95 and hit every hospital. So when you're on call on the weekend, it's pretty much nose to the grindstone, up against that work wall, just patient after patient after patient. How many patients might you hear from or see on a given weekend? So on a typical Saturday, I would say I see around between 40 and 50 patients a day and then get multiple phone calls in between from patients at home needing refills on meds, having questions, et cetera. Now that's tough. When you were in training, did you anticipate working that hard in private practice? My training was so difficult, Ira, I don't think I even really thought about what it was going to be like in private practice. Well, let's talk a little bit about your training. Tell the audience what it takes to get to the position that you're in. How much training did you have and where did you do it? So I went four years to medical school at the University of Miami, and then I did my internship and residency at Harvard at Massachusetts General Hospital, and then that was three years, and then three years of fellowship at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at Harvard Medical School. So that was six years, four years, so that's 10 years past college. And now, didn't you do specialty work after your hematology oncology fellowship in leukemias? Well, when I was a fellow, I worked on the transplant floor extensively, did a lot of time doing bone marrow transplants at Harvard, and thought about becoming a transplanter, but ultimately I decided that I wanted to do community more private practice because I had my daughter during my fellowship. And and I'm sorry, I, I have to say this. So you're you're a tiny bit older than me, only like six months, right? <laughs> but I have to say what you said to me before the show, which was that you trained at a time when your field was, maybe still is, very male dominated. So, you know, to me, this having a baby experience is a is a big deal to everybody going through it. Oh, you, it was a you very big deal. Went through it in the middle of the storm that was your intense training. And well, when I graduated my fellowship, there were a bunch of men graduating with me. And when I got up to get my diploma, and they said, Heather had a baby. Wow, Heather had a baby during this. <laughs> so I did have my daughter during my fellowship, which was very hard, but it was a great time to have a kid because I'm a young mother now. Well, we talk about this with all of our guests, and it's achieving that sense of balance. How do you achieve that sense of balance with your husband, your children, your tremendous workload? What keeps you on an even keel? I guess just putting my priorities in check. And I always have, I have 
supportive parents that are always around helping me. Um, and we we just have a big family that always helps out. And you're from Miami originally. And I'm from born and raised in the 305 Miami Beach. Well, that is my favorite zip code <laughs> and area code, 305 area code. We used to have that 305 area code here. I know. My daughter still is mad at me for giving up my 305 phone number from when I left medical school. She would think that that would be the coolest number to have now. And what, well, you can do it now. You can get any number you want on your cell phone, too. That but they ran out of 305 numbers. Did they run out of 305 numbers? <laughs> Miami is crowded. So why hematology oncology? It's such a tough field and at times very rewarding, but often very sad. Was there a trigger in your life why you went into hematology oncology? Well, my grandmother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was a kid. When I was eight years old, my grandmother had a mastectomy, had chemotherapy, then unfortunately relapsed with her cancer when I was in medical school and passed away. And then um, that was very hard on me watching her die of the cancer. And then my dog got cancer too, and we had to put him down, he had lymphoma. And it just seemed like the, the type of illness that no one really deserved to have. And it was something that you really wanted to help people and try and fix them. Well, that's, that's a good story. Do you treat all kinds of cancer? I do treat all kinds of cancer, but I specialize a lot in breast cancer just because I'm the only female partner in my group. So by default, I've seen a ton of breast cancer and ovarian cancer, but I'm triple boarded. So I see hematology, oncology, and internal. I don't really do internal medicine, but I am board certified in internal medicine. Yeah, I would say that one of the special things about your field is that you're so you're so connected to the patient because you're taking care of them at a, such an acute time in their illness that you often have to do a lot of what other people would consider primary care. Oh, yes. I think we're just, as oncologists, when you're giving chemo, they essentially lose their primary care because they're coming in to see you every week and you're the one who's managing their chemo and all the side effects and all the problems that they're having. So they essentially call you with all their problems. So you become their primary care while you're giving them chemo. Well, as a cancer expert, when do you refer to other cancer subspecialists? So I, I do refer, I do refer a good amount. Um, Hemalignancies is a specialty that definitely a lot of times needs to be referred out to a tertiary care center. Like that. Explain to our audience what that what that is. Such as leukemias and lymphomas. We in the Treasure Coast do not have a bone marrow transplant unit. We, um, because of that, we cannot induce leukemics. We can't give high doses of chemo. We don't have a blood lane to support it. So those type of cancers have to be shipped to a university setting to get the best level of care. Anything that I feel that someone else would be better off treating um, and they get better care just due to the resources, I tend to ship off. If you've just joined us, we're talking to Dr. Heather Yeckes Roden, hematologist oncologist with Hematology Oncology of the Treasure Coast, and you're listening to Paradox. So what's your typical day like in the office? Well, I get to the office usually around 8.30, start seeing patients, and it's extremely busy. We see usually the chemo patients in the morning and in the afternoon more of the follow-ups, but there's around 40, 40, 45, 
patients a day. Plus ton, a lot of phone calls on that too. Plus a lot of phone calls, plus hospital rounds. And you can do that every day. What keeps you from burning out? I guess I'm just going home and enjoying my children when I get home. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's I would say that anytime we're talking about cancer, you know, the, the mood in the room gets a little serious, right? Because most everybody has had some experience with the kind of emotion that uh, everyone experiences when a family member or the person has cancer. You, you do this all day, every day. So you're often breaking bad news to patients. And what's that like? Well, of course, that's not fun to break bad news, but I try to... Most of my patients, I deal with a lot of breast cancers, a lot of them are curable people. So I would say the survival with breast cancers get, and in cancers in general is getting so much better with all the modern medicine, new drugs that are on the market, that um, it's getting more and more rewarding trying to save people's lives. And yeah. putting them in remission is just a very exciting, rewarding job. Can imagine. I, I I remember one time being told when I was in training by maybe it was your colleague um, that 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 the oncologist can feel some disappointment when other types of doctors or family members are too pessimistic about these cancer diagnoses because if you don't know the statistics of you know survivability, it can really make things seem more dire than they sometimes are. People are living with cancer these days. That is correct. But cancer still seems to be such a big fear for almost everyone. Do you have a unique way of delivering the diagnosis to people? Because you have to deliver bad news a lot. No one wants to hear those words, you have cancer. How do you tell them? So a lot of times people come to me with cancer. So if they come from a breast surgeon, they have already been diagnosed with the breast cancer, they know they have cancer, or the oncologist, they know they have cancer. Um, so I don't do a lot of the breaking news to people that they have cancer. I do more of the treatment, what are we going to do to fix the cancer? And sometimes you've got to get breaking news that the, can the chemotherapy is not working or the treatment's not working, and that's hard to do. But I try to always have a plan as to what I'm going to do before I walk in the room. Because people, when they come in, they're anxious to get their results. And if it's not working, they want a plan. And so I try to have a plan of action so that I can give people the optimism that they need to fight the cancer. How about you, Leanne? Um, you and I tell people they have cancer quite often before we send to doctors like Dr. Jackie's. Yeah. How do you tell them? Well, you know, I would say that my... MO across the board is to always try to put myself in the position of the patient. And I think that, you know, I always tell people I grew up here, I was born here, my parents were born here. I mean, there's a good chance that I know whoever it is, my next patient getting ready to sign up, I probably know them somehow. And so I I just try to imagine what if they were if they belong to me, how I would want that news delivered if they were my family. And I think that you know, primary care doctors do break a lot of bad news. It isn't always cancer related, but I think that all of your experiences in life add up to 
having those conversations, you know, being married, having children, being a child, having parents, having grandparents, all of that makes you who you are and being able to put yourself in the shoes of the person you're talking to because of all the experiences you come from, I think is critical to addressing, you know, the person that you're speaking to. So what I'm hearing is similar to the way I was trained to do it with compassion and with empathy. And there's a big difference between sympathy and empathy. Because if you're sympathetic, then you're actually feeling sorry for someone. But if you're empathetic, you feel for them, but want to deliver in the information in the most positive way possible, which is what I do and what I'm hearing from you. So it's compassion and empathy combined. And then we send them to someone like Dr. Heather. Then we send them to Dr. Heather. And they're so happy to get there and find out what are we going to do about this. So when we talk about cancer, you, you always hear about detection, prevention, early detection. Is that still the key in managing most cancers and in getting a better prognosis? I think certainly for breast cancer it is. I think um, for cervical cancer it is. Um, now they have cervical cancer vaccines for prevention. They have, obviously, 3D mammograms are great to pick up um, breast cancers. But unfortunately, cancers like pancreatic cancer, there's no prevention, there's no screening, there's nothing that can be done. And so it depends on the cancer. Well, that's interesting because a lot of patients... Are watching Jeopardy. Are watching Jeopardy. <laughs> or, but, right. And, and we all, all know right. Alex Trebek has cancer. Sign up for a new cancer. season, even, he announced well, we also know that patients tend to read the internet a lot. So patients will come in with handouts of tumor markers, which actually aren't recommended as screening tools, and want to know why we don't use tumor markers such as a CA199 for pancreatic cancer, or a CA125 tumor marker for ovarian cancer as a screening tool. Can you speak a little bit about that? So I think a tumor marker like CA125 is incredibly useful to a person that has ovarian cancer. And it's very useful in monitoring treatment for people with ovarian cancer. But unfortunately, you can get so many false positives for CA125s as well as CA199s that it's never been shown to be effective as screening tests. And so I tell people all the time, well, I don't usually get to tell them because I'm not their primary care doctor, but I would say you definitely would get a lot more false positive results than, than you would get positive results using that. And, and for, the, for the patient, right, because in this day and age, everybody wants something, you know, doing nothing is not a popular American uh, belief. So what is the harm of a false positive? So the harm could be, obviously getting a CAT scan, and then what if you get a contrast, did you take IV contrast and box your kidneys and wind up having kidney failure? Or what if you then- You define for our listening audience, boxing your kidneys. Boxing your kidneys. <laughs> because that's, that's slang doctor's lounge so, so you injure your kidneys and damage them to the point where you're on dialysis. Um, so you could have kidney failure from having IV contrast with a CAT scan for a test that you didn't for need. a test that you didn't even need, or perhaps let's say they found a spot in your lung, 
and there was some concern, is there lung cancer? And you were nervous, and even doesn't really look like lung cancer, but they stuck a needle in your lung to biopsy, and they drop your lung, and you now have a chest tube in place. I mean, all of these scans, yes, we can do them, um, but there are risks to everything we do in medicine. Even any medication has risks. So I think that they should be interpreted with caution and it should be up to the ordering provider whether they think the test is necessary. Well, there is one test that at one time was recommended and it was in favor and then it fell out of favor and now it's kind of, do you order them, do you don't? And it was low dose CT scanning of the lungs for people that so have smoked over the age of 50. That, I think that's definitely in favor. So I, I recommend that. And now that test is done on an annual basis? It's done annually for people who meet criteria as being high risk to develop lung cancer. And again, that's because of this wanting to screen the appropriate people so that we don't end up with an inordinate amount of false positives. Correct. So you have to meet specific criteria of how many years you've smoked, um, what your uh, exposure to cigarette smoke was, and it's a low-dose CAT scan. It's not with any IV contrast and it's much less radiation than the regular CAT scans that are done. Sounding an awful lot like it's really hard for Dr. Google to tell you what to do. It is, <laughs> and, and it gets even worse because there's a lot of, there are a lot of cancers that have genetic predispositions. Oh yes, yeah. so now we are all getting genetic testing for, for recreational purposes. But do you do genetic testing or do you send them to a genetic counselor and who should go and when should they go and... So, What's, what's so the story on that? I do that? a lot of genetic testing in my office um, because I was frustrated. There's very there's no genetic counselor licensed in the Treasure Coast, period. There's just not. And so I do a lot of genetic testing on my patients who already have cancer for the BRCA mutation, Lynch syndrome, other different mutations that are common. Explain to our listeners what Lynch syndrome is. So Lynch syndrome is another genetic mutation that... Um, predisposes people to certain other types of cancers like colon cancer, uterine cancer, um, sweat gland cancers. And there's a very high risk of colon cancers and the screening for colonoscopies is much higher. So if the person had colon cancer and mom had uterine cancer and the sister had uterine cancer, it's a red flag that there might be a genetic mutation. Um, so we do the testing in our office and we send it out to a lab in uh, New Jersey and we get the result back. As a physician, I'm able to counsel someone, and then if they come back with a positive test, I hook, I um, arrange for them to speak with a licensed genetic counselor to tell them all the implications that it would have, not just on them, but on any first-degree relative. If you've just joined us, we're talking to Dr. Heather Yeckes Roden, hematologist, oncologist, right here in Stewart and in Port St. Lucie, Florida with a phenomenal group, and obviously Dr. Yucky's Road is brilliant, phenomenal training. We're gonna take a commercial break. In two minutes. In two minutes. So we've got just enough time to talk about something that a lot of people wanna know about, and that's BRCA, or the BRCA gene, for breast and ovarian cancer. And we've seen a lot of that with film stars having that recently, and Say a little bit about ovarian and breast cancer and the link with BRCA testing and BRCA positive. So BRCA is the BRCA gene and there's BRCA1 and BRCA2 and it was 
developed in, uh, the test was originally found in Boston, um, and it was originally found on Ashkenazi Jews because Jewish people tended to marry Jewish people and they saw a high risk of breast cancer. And those are Jews from Eastern European? Eastern European ancestry, Ashkenazi Jews. Nevertheless, anyone can have a BRCA gene and we test for it all the time. Um, anyone with a triple negative breast cancer, a young person with breast cancer, or family with ovarian, family history of ovarian or breast cancer, we definitely do the test. We're going to take a commercial break and we'll be back. We're going to talk more about the BRCA gene when we come back and what causes cancer, perhaps. All right, we're halfway there. Are the questions engaging? I, I, I'm trying to dump down. I know, I realize Fox should be here. But they probably like That's that. That's cute. They love it. They love it. Uh, we have to get on to the show. You want the format? Yeah. What'd you get in Fox? I have something else I wanted to do. Uh, the rabbi had asked me to be a guest at this show. We did a show on religion and medicine. He has a show called A Priest and a Rabbi with a priest here in town. And the priest was out one day and he said, let's do a show on religion and medicine. And we'll talk about where religion and medicine converge and where they diverge. So I did two segments of that show with him. And I called up Carol Wyatt, who was on the board with me for years, St. Lucie Medical Center, and said, I want my own show. She goes, okay, it costs you, but we'll do it. And so it's good advertising for me. Because yeah. they, they give me 90 commercial spots mm -hmm. and Leanne spots and... Do you want to pick up when we come back? Okay. Uh, well, wait a minute. So, was, so she's going to finish up Braca. You know, uh, when we last reintroduced thing, if you just join us as Paradox, and then we're going to talk a bit more about Braca testing and who needs to be tested. She had mentioned Ashkenazi Jews. At what age do they need to be tested? Then you go to, so the big question is, we don't have an answer to what causes cancers. Is it, you know? I want to ask her about 23andMe. Okay. Like, what's the deal with that? I wouldn't, I mean, I think there's no. nothing. Okay. I People mean, aren't coming to you with results no. from that kind but of thing. Ask it, but ask it. Ask it because the audience wants to know. Yes, that that's a good stuff. question. Yeah. Because that's what people would be thinking. Don't they advertise that they can find? I don't think it's. I don't think they advertise that. I think they but, just are looking for The thing is, 23andMe, isn't it like a saliva test? Yes. I don't think it's as accurate as a blood test. Like no, you know, there's an algorithm that they use, all these different tests, and it is it's like reading tea leaves. So they just kind of give you a flavor or a notion about your heritage, but they really don't know. No. But 23andMe, I thought, kind of specifically advertised. I, I, don't, really, I don't really know right. enough yeah, about that. To, to you know what I'm saying? Okay. Like versus ancestry.org, uh, yeah. which gives you like a percentage of that's a genetic American. Yeah. Right. I don't know enough about genetics, okay. so I know about Let, it. Let's not do that. So right. we'll do the bracket. So I want you to be a little bit closer to the microphone. See, you see where I got you potted up here? And then see uh, where everybody else is. Yeah. So so then I'll finish up page one and then then you start we're good. with We're good. We'll just we're do what we normally do. Okay, all right, here we go. All right. Bring her back. Yeah, bring her back. All right, here we go. I'll give you, I'll cue you in.
Welcome back to Paradox. Welcome back to Paradox. You're listening here to Dr. Ira Pearlstein, Dr. Leanne Talton. We are your co-hosts, and today we are interviewing Dr. Heather Yekis Roden, local hematologist, oncologist, and it thrills me to the mirror to have you here. <laughs> That's the name of the show. Oh. Everybody, Ira is responsible for these show names. And I, I didn't even get a laugh track, Frank. Come I, on. Uh, I didn't get a laugh track. Wait, 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 wait. It's, uh, how about this? Oh, like that even better. That's a new one. Okay, so before we left off, we were asking Dr. Heather Yeckes Roden about the BRCA gene. You were giving us a little bit of background information. That's a gene for testing for certain types of breast cancer. Correct. It's um, for it's the breast cancer and ovarian cancer genes. So anyone who's diagnosed with ovarian cancer in today's world uh, warrants a BRCA gene test. And the way we do it is we draw their blood and we consent them to do the test. And um, anyone with ovarian cancer warrants the test because there is treatment now for ovarian cancer that is specifically targeted if you have the BRCA mutation. As well as we do it for breast cancer patients, specifically people with triple negative breast cancers, age after 50, significant family history. And what do you mean by triple negative breast cancer? So triple negative breast cancers is a very aggressive type of breast cancer that is not fed by estrogen, progesterone, or HER2 And they tend to be very aggressive, but they also tend to be um, found in uh, patients that harbor the BRCA mutation. So again, you know, I think that from a, a listener's perspective, for our American listening perspective, why can't everybody get tested for the BRCA mutation? Well, I mean, it's a quite expensive test. And so um, we test people once, we test the person who has the cancer or the specific mutation. If the person who has the cancer, let's say you come to me and you have the cancer and you're 50 years old with ovarian cancer, we test you and you have the BRCA mutation. There's a 50% chance you would give this to your child. There's also a 50% chance your sibling could have this. So what, then what we do is start testing siblings, any first-degree relative child, etc. Usually we do not check, test children until they're, um, they meet with their primary care doctor and at least over the age of 21. It's, not, it's really unethical to test them at a young age. But there's a very high risk of breast cancer as well as ovarian cancer. And it's the standard of care if you have one of these mutations to go ahead and have bilateral mastectomies as well as a hysterectomy and your ovaries out. So basically remove both breasts, remove your uterus, and remove your ovaries, which is a very extreme thing to do. So certainly we wouldn't want to be doing this to people who haven't even matured yet and haven't raised their children or had children yet. And... I had alluded earlier to that there were several movie stars who had brought this more to the forefront. I believe it was, was it Angeline Jolie? Angeline Jolie. Yeah. And her mother uh, had passed away from a GYN cancer. And so then she, I, I gathered that the mother had the BRCA mutation and she got tested and had it. And she was done having children. So she opted to have her surgeries. So my big question to you is, other than the genetic predisposition with certain cancers, do we really know what causes cancers? You know, when I was in training decades ago, <laughs> they thought that it had to be the triple whammy, so to speak. You had to have a genetic predisposition, an environmental trigger, and a break in the immune system. And perhaps those three things had to coexist at one time. 
But cancer is really the failure of the body to correctly repair itself on a cellular level. Do you have any specific thoughts on what you think might cause the majority of cancers that we see in this country? So I think, unfortunately, cancer is linked as one big illness called cancer. But every cancer is different. Uh, breast cancers, even within breast cancers, there's so many different types of breast cancers. You have certain leukemias, take chronic myeloid leukemia, where it's just one mutation, point mutation between the ninth and 22nd chromosome in your body that gets mutated and boom, you have this leukemia. And we've now discovered this and we now have a drug that specifically targets that mutation and people now live for years with this cancer and go into a long remission. So I think every cancer is different and people always say, oh, we're gonna find the cure for cancer. But the cure is different for each cancer. And so it's a misnomer to think that every cancer, it's one thing causing the cancer. You know, why is there such a high risk of lung cancer with smokers? Because cigarette smoke damages the lining of your head and neck as well as your lungs, which predisposes to lung cancer. So do you think we're seeing more cancer now or do you just think people are living longer? I think both. I think A, people aren't dying of heart attacks. I mean, when my mom was a little girl, her dad died in the 40s of heart attacks. You rarely ever hear of a man dying of heart attacks anymore because there's such great treatment for stents and cholesterol lowering drugs. So people live longer and ultimately develop cancer. But on the same on the same side, there are things probably in our environment that are not good. We know that hormones cause breast cancer. Hormone replacement therapy has been shown to be a risk factor for breast cancer. Um, so I think people are living longer. I also think that people are living with the cancer. So the pool of cancer patients, the incidence is rising, but the population of people living with cancer is also rising because let's take a person with breast cancer. We catch the cancer so much faster by doing mammograms. So we catch them earlier so they don't die and they live with the cancer. And the treatments are getting better and better for all types of cancers. So, do you, so you, you mentioned earlier that you make a lot of referrals out to tertiary care centers for different treatments. Uh, do, you, do you think that most cancers can be managed locally or, because you know, I think it's a, what I see in primary care at least is that um, people feel like there's something, you know, very important about going directly to a center where they have expertise in a particular, oftentimes patients don't even know what the expertise is, right? They just know the right. name. They just famous. know the name, Sloan right. Kettering or right. Moffitt. And, and or... they think they're going to get better care there. What's your response to how maybe we should start thinking about local management and its role? I think that the local oncologists here, I can only speak for my group, but I think we're all very well trained and I think we can handle about 90% of the cancer cases. We often work hand in hand with tertiary care centers. Today, I was on the phone with a doctor from Shands, I was on the phone with a doctor from Miami, and I was on the phone with a doctor from Moffitt, all about three different patients. And I think it's important to have an oncologist locally, because ultimately, if you're living in Stewart, Florida, you may have a complication that warrants you to be admitted to the hospital. Let's say you get short of breath, let's say you have a fever on chemotherapy, and someone needs to be there to help you. And if you don't have a local oncologist, you could get into trouble. So I tend to work hand in hand with university settings. 
of university surgeons. If there's a major surgery like an esophagectomy, if a person has esophageal cancer and they need to have their esophagus cut out, it's not something we do in Stewart, Florida. So we send them down to Miami to see a university, but we would give them the chemo up here and we coordinate the care with the University of Miami. So it depends on the cancer and it depends on what kind of treatment, how young the person is, how many more, how many medical problems they have, or they someone that you would do everything for, or are they much older on an oxygen tank with a lot of comorbidities. So all of those things play in. So generally speaking, and, and nothing's always, but are the same protocols used for cancer treatments available to any oncologist throughout the United States from say Sloan Kettering or Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland or Moffitt or uh, some of these other large cancer centers in the country. Do you have access to those protocols? So if a protocol is FDA approved, then yes, we have access to it. If a protocol is on a clinical trial, we probably don't have access to it. Now my office in Fort St. Lucie runs a big clinical trial program and we have a lot of clinical trials here in Fort St. Lucie that we participate in, but we may not have the trial that um, Shans has or Moffitt has or Sloan Kettering has. In addition, um, they sometimes do things where they can get away with doing drugs that are not FDA approved where we can't because we're a small practice. So if you're treating a patient with cancer, and I know that's a broad term. You've, you've told us it's a broad term because there are many different types of cancers. That's like someone has a, an infection, there are many different types of infections. But in general, how important is it to you to involve the patient's entire healthcare team? For instance, their primary care doctor, their specialist, their cardiologist, if they have heart problems, but they have heart failure and that cancer might affect their heart function more or the chemotherapy might affect it more. Do you prefer to take over the case and manage everything because you are boarded, triple boarded, as you said, internal medicine, or do you like to involve their other doctors early on in their care? Well, Ira, you should know that I always involve the other doctors. As right, I always, but my, but my I always, audience doesn't know that. As I always call you when they have cardiac problems or any type of other type of problem. Yes, I knew the answer to that, <laughs> but it was in my dialogue. I had to ask it, and I wanted the audience to know. Sure. We, for their I always level. communicate with all the other doctors. I copy them on my notes, and if I have a question, I call them right away to find out what to do. I Just because people get infections, so I'm on the phone with infectious disease doctors. If they have cardiac problems, I'm on the phone with a cardiologist because chemo affects everything. Chemo, there's massive fluid shifts when you give chemotherapy. So all of these things need to be in check. I mean, sugars go up because people get put on steroids with their chemo. If they have diabetes, that becomes a problem. So I don't wanna manage every little problem, nor do I know enough about their history, whereas someone like you, who's been taking care of them for years, would know everything about their history. Now, just for the audience who may not have experience with uh, cancer treatments, can you tell us what chemotherapy is? What What, what is it? So chemotherapy is um, a drug that, in the simplest form that would be used to interrupt the cell cycle. 
uh, growth. So m the old-fashioned chemo is are the people think of as, oh my God, I'm going to lose my hair, nausea, vomiting, all those type of side effects. The wave of the future, though, is not chemotherapy. And um, chemotherapy, there's se several cancers that are hardcore chemo. You have to get them. But the wave of the future is moving away from chemo or using chemo in combination with other drugs to get the best survival rates. Well, let's talk about some of these novel approaches to cancers. You know, CyberNi, for instance, which is direct uh, radiation therapy uh, versus whole body radiation uh, or more widespread radiation. We talked about CyberKnife a little bit and mentioned that. But when you watch TV, we all hear advertisements about cancer drugs. And a lot of these are in a class called monoclonal antibodies. Uh -huh. Explain to everyone listening what are monoclonal antibodies? And I know they're different types, but what's your what's your interpretation so that our so audience can know? So there's the way I look at it, there's several phases moving past chemo. So the first phase was monoclonal antibodies, which were drugs that are targeted to meet specific proteins that go bad or specific markers that go bad in someone's cancer. So for example, rituxan, which has been around for a long time now, um, targets CD20, which is a marker on B cell lymphoma cells. So it basically t goes right to the lymphoma cell and kills it, as opposed to doing a standard chemo, which just hits rapidly dividing cells. So that's why you lose your hair, your hair is always dividing, your nails start to get messed up, you know, you get some GI discomfort. So the monoclonal antibodies, such as rituxan or Herceptin, they have revolutionized cancer care. Herceptin uh, targets HER2 mu, which is a, a very aggressive protein on breast cancers. And that drug um, has given survival rates in breast cancer, re reduced the risk of recurrence by 50% for people with that type of breast cancer. So they were revolutionary. And now we're, you know, we went through a phase of all the monoclonal antibodies and they're still very involved with the care, but now we do targeted drugs hitting specific mutations that went wrong in the people's cancer, like Levac for CML. And now you probably see on TV every day, ask your doctor about Keytruda. Yeah. It saved my life. Ask your doctor about Opdivo. And they're on TV all the time. And yeah. that's not a monoclonal antibody. That's an immunotherapy drug. Um, and that what that does is it tries to rev up your immune system to fight the cancer. The same way your immune system, if you got a virus, would fight the cancer. And that's the whole goal of immunotherapy, which is fascinating because it's getting your immune system to recognize the cancer as foreign, the same way as if you got a cold, it recognizes that bug as being foreign. So now, my understanding with monoclonal antibodies, and here again to our audience, if you're on a monoclonal antibody, you may not even know you're on one, but that drug if you take the generic name of the drug, not the brand name of the drug, it usually ends in MAB, like MAB, right? Correct. And they use a lot of monoclonal antibodies for rheumatologic diseases. Uh, they use it to treat a lot of cancer. It's just a whole host of diseases. Crohn's disease, now they're using monoclonal antibody treatment. But my understanding is that there are some monoclonal antibodies that are used in cancers. You can actually attach a 
chemotherapeutic drug to that monoclonal antibody, or even some form of directed radiation type medication that to that drug. How does how would that work? And, so and where would you use that? So uh, Cadzilla, which is a great cancer that's uh, cancer drug that's basically like Herceptin, with almost like a added chemotherapy onto the Herceptin. So for people that the Herceptin didn't work, it's a new and improved type of Herceptin. So, and um, they have it for prostate cancer now with the radiation and they've had it for um, lymphomas. So every type of targeted drug, when it's targeted, you get less side effects and that's what makes it so great. Cost? Cost is expensive. Who, co who covers that? Insurance. Always? Not always. People that don't have insurance, um, they they are in a pickle because it's extremely expensive. We sometimes apply to the drug companies to get free drug for them if they can if we can prove that they really don't have tons of money in the bank. They'll have to bring in their tax returns. Not for my office purpose, but we have a for to so they can apply to pharmaceutical companies to get the drugs for free. So you have just, I'm going to just take a little backup from the medicine aspect of things, but you've just described a couple of different departments within your office. You said you have a clinical research department in Port St. Lucie. Now you say that you have special people that specifically uh, apply for um, coverage for medication if they don't have insurance coverage. What, how many people work for you? What, what does your office uh, hierarchy look like? So we have over 100 workers in my office and um, the hierarchy is there's five partners who are all are equal but we all manage different things in our office and we infuse our own chemo in all the offices we have our own clinical trial department we have our own cat scanner and pet scanner which is very important because there's not that many pet scanners around and pet scans are great too for detecting cancer we um, have our own dispensary so we can get people oral drugs. This is a big problem because all these oral drugs came to the market, which are targeted therapies too, but the local CVS doesn't carry them. With local, so you could be prescribing drugs for people and then they can't get it. It's one thing when they have the intravenous and we give that in our office, but the orals are somewhat of a problem because if CVS doesn't have it and Publix Pharmacy and Walgreens, they don't have it because it's so expensive, they don't keep it on the shelf. So this way, we try to provide a service to all our patients. Well, and I don't think a lot of people or a lot of offices actually, I don't think a lot of people know that. I, I know a lot of offices don't do that. So for you, cancer isn't about running an office. For you, it takes a village. That is correct. Um, our, our practice is really a company because we have to do all of these things. We have people that are dedicated just to helping people with their finances because it's such a struggle. If you can imagine, you, if you get breast cancer, let's say, and you're a single mom and you're working and you have an insurance policy, but now you can't work because you have cancer and who's going to pay your co-pays and how are you going to pay your COBRA? I mean, all of these things come into play and then you can't afford to get your co-pays for your drugs. It becomes a hardship for people. So is that something that you just learned on the job? Because you know, I think that medical education is evolving. So for example, versus my colleagues that I worked with, I, I had a lot of training for how to bill and how to code. I mean, did 
when you were in training, did you anticipate having to run this big operation no. with business skills that you may no, not have I trained with? <laughs> I knew nothing about. Yeah, what what a what an up curve! But but obviously you've done a, a great great job with it. If you've just joined us, you've joined us very late. But we're listening to Paradox. I'm Dr. Ira Perlstein, my co-host, Dr. Leanne Talton. Our special guest today, Dr. Heather Yekis Roden, hematologist oncologist here on the Treasure Coast. And if you did join us late, remember you can catch the entire show on our podcast. A few ways to get to our podcast. You can go to podbean.com and type in Paradox, or you can go to iTunes and go to podcast and go to Paradox. So we're nearing the end of our show and Dr. Heather, you have done a beautiful job of uh, making this a lot less um, confusing for patients who may not have experienced it firsthand as far as diagnosis and what's on the horizon for treatment. What do you think about the, the thinking of using vaccines to prevent cancer? I mean, we see commercials for Gardasil. Can you talk about that? So not all cancers, like I told you, all cancers are caused differently. We haven't figured them all out. But cervical cancer has been linked to the HPV virus. That's a known fact. So the vaccine is to prevent one from ever catching that virus. The same way we give people vaccines for the measles or the chickenpox now, it's the same thought. So HPV has been linked to cervical cancer. It's been linked to anal cancer. It's been linked to head and neck cancer. It's not the only cause of those cancers, but it's been linked to them. So we know that if you don't get that virus, you have a less chance of getting the cancer. So did I vaccinate my 14-year-old? Absolutely. So we're getting better with some cancers. We're curing a lot of cancers. We're seeing some cancers increase and some cancers decrease. What cancers are we actually curing? So I think we're curing a, a lot of cancers uh, with, with for sure, breast cancer now with her her two positive drugs with Herceptin for Yetta Cat's Island. We got a lot more cures. We're curing lymphomas. We're curing a lot of cancers. Testicular cancer, that's an old one, but it hasn't really changed much. Certain leukemias, they have targeted therapies. There's a lot of cancers we're curing. Even lung cancer, we're not necessarily curing lung cancer, but the survival of lung cancer used to be six to nine months if you had stage four lung cancer. I've got people in my clinic now living years with lung cancer. So we might not necessarily be curing cancers, but they're living with it the way they live with diabetes. Yeah. Well, thank you. We really appreciate your time, especially now that we know what kind of a grueling lifestyle you have. And for all of those listening, you don't know how special this has been because um, Dr. Heather Yekis Roden is a wonderful physician and all of the patients that I share with her are lifelong lovers of her. They just credit you with their That's with their life and they just right. enjoy I just it. want to say ditto. Yeah. I, one time, one of my other colleagues said, uh, you want Heather in your corner. And I think that I, no greater compliment has could be given to a physician than, well, than thank that. Thank you. Thank you. Heather, Heather can make things work. You've been a wonderful guest. We'd love to have you back sometime. Sure. No problem. We, we could get you back. You could get me back. We well, gotta, that's going to be. We got to plan in advance. Right. right. <laughs> Guys, don't forget to tune in to Paradox. I'm Dr. Ira Pearlstein. Say goodbye, Leanne. 
We'll catch you next time. Frank, you did a great job. Thank you again, Heather. You're welcome. Have a good night. Thank you. You did wonderful. You're welcome. Are we do okay? You did great. We didn't, we didn't ask you.